0: This week on Hangar Talk, relief for airmen with temporary certificates.
1: Arian and Boeing partner up on a supersonic bizjet.
0: Also, drones win the Super Bowl.
1: And Boeing has been busy because they flew an electric VTOL just recently.
0: All right, Davey, you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk,
1: Ian. From
0: AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hanger Talk 1056 turn right heading 130 parent back final one three two point four turn right with your hosts Ian Dwomley and David Julitz. This is Hanger Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tealess. And David, um, really cool guest this week. Clay Lacey, he is a legend in aviation. And um, Tom Haynes reached out to him recently and sat down with him, and they had a they had a really interesting talk.
1: Absolutely. And I haven't met Clay, but I'm looking forward to listening to what he has to say about aviation and the next generation.
0: Yeah, it's pretty cool. Pretty cool. Uh, let's get into the news so you remember the government shutdown. I mean, we all remember that, right? Um, we talked about that here on forget? the show. There, there yeah, might be yeah. another
1: one be- as this podcast gets
0: published. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah, we're never out of the woods, are we? But uh, something that I think is, is people have been asking and have been dogging people a little bit. Um, we went through in detail what happens with testing during the shutdown. But now that the shutdown is, at least for now, over, maybe, or not, we'll see, Those who have temporary airman certificates, because the processing is going to take a little longer, there is some relief now that the FAA has offered.
1: Right. And that's the thing. You have to kind of look ahead at your certificate don't forget the temporary authority is valid for 60 days and you don't want to get caught having that expire when in fact you could get it set up so that you can keep holding on to your airman certificate you don't want to expire during a potential shutdown
0: yeah so of course when you pass a practical test you get that piece of paper and that's good to fly on but it's then it's got to go through that whole process of the FISDO and oak city and everything else and they mail you that permanent but this will allow you to, uh, to extend that temporary. You have to go onto the FAA's website, and it's a little involved. It's going to take you a few minutes, but it's going to keep you legal.
1: Right, and we want to stay legal, absolutely. And it's not that hard to do that once you tap dance around to that FAA website and look on their Airmen Online Services page to request that temporary authority. That's a, a good first step and um, easy to do and definitely protect your freedom to fly.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, want to get into a few future stories here. I think we got a lot of talk about the future this week, and some pretty interesting stuff going on. Um, the first of which is that Boeing and Aeron have partnered in the supersonic bizjet.
1: And that is a Mach 1.4 bizjet, so that is pretty doggone fast. Yeah, and that combines some of Aeron's supersonic expertise, and you know, Boeing's got a global industrial business together here. They, they get parts from all over the world. Mm-hmm. So it's, they're a giant in the manufacturing process. And I, I can only imagine that the synergies are really going to help
0: each other out. Yeah, it is really interesting. And as part of the backstory here is that Arion, which has been going now for, gosh, for years with this uh, concept, they're on the AS2 now, the supersonic bizjet. They're hoping to bring it to market by 2023, which may be a little ambitious seeing as they haven't even run the engines yet or anything, but but we'll see. But it it is helpful to get Boeing on board. You know, you've got the capital investment there. You've got the certification expertise. Boeing, obviously, experts at that. Like you said, you've got the the manufacturing infrastructure, and so they're hoping that's going to put them to the finish line. But the backstory there that that I think is interesting is that you know both Airbus and Lockheed have been partners with Ariane in the past.
1: So you're looking at uh, you're looking at Boeing now versus Airbus, and I know Boeing and Airbus are this is a head to head rivalry. Much like the Super Bowl we just had between uh, yeah. the New England Patriots and the Los Angeles Rams, actually Boeing and Airbus is a better rivalry, I would say. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> but they're looking to uh, to look. It was an underwhelming game, but they're looking to um, Boeing's looking to cruise as fast as. Did I read this right? Mach
0: five. Yeah. In this
1: uh, boomless cruise version.
0: Yeah, yeah. So they, I know they have. Boeing has looked at some technology in the fa- in the past, um, hypersonic and, and for an airliner. And yeah, they've talked about a Mach 5 concept. Arian's looking for something a little more modest with this kind of 1.4, 1.2 area, mainly because, you know, there is no precedent to cruise supersonic over the continental U.S. There is actually a, a limitation on that right now. And so they're going to have to demonstrate that they can do that without um, having some booms rain down on, uh, on windows as they go across the country.
1: So when the SST was still flying, that was okay, Ian. I guess because you're going across the ocean from continent to continent, Mm -hmm. but not transcontinentally across the the greater U.S.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's right. And and uh, you know, of course, the military when they're doing training, they either have to get a a a release for that, you know, an approval for that, or they're doing it offshore. So. Same thing right now at least for the Ariane, But we'll we'll see. I mean, I think obviously to be able to go this far and to get Boeing's backing and and, and before it Airbus and Lockheed, it's like they're obviously working at that problem and and see a way around it. This is
1: really interesting. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of a lot of high tech technology in that, and also uh, I'm guessing a uh, you know composite structure things like that. But it would worry me a little bit about. The altitude you'd have to be at a high flying altitude, mm-hmm. and um, what worries me about that is is only if something goes wrong. I recently read a novel. I want to say it was by Thomas Block, and uh, it kind of um, kind of was just about that. It was a you know a supersonic air transport flight, or something went wrong, and they were flying super high, like at sixty thousand feet. But by the time he got down, there was like oxygen starvation in the cabin. So again, yeah. a lot of technical yeah. problems to overcome. Uh, including creature comforts for uh for the passengers. Yeah.
0: And pilots. Of course, yeah, of course you and I won't have to worry about this cuz they're, they're previously announced price tag. Now this is the target before they even start building these things. 120 million bucks per airplane. So That's, that's uh, a little
1: bit more than the Cessna 172 that I could yeah.
0: just yep. about afford. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> um hey, so you mentioned the Super Bowl. This is a really interesting I think, confluence of things that happened at the Super Bowl this year uh, with drones. And and you had a first-row seat to this.
1: I did, Ian. I did a little photo editing for my buddies at United Press International and um, over at the Super Bowl in Atlanta. And folks who are regular podcast listeners know that that is where I am from. It was an awesome event at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. It was an awesome event for the city. The game itself was underwhelming, as I mentioned a little while ago. And I, I wasn't crazy about the halftime entertainment as compared to other shows. However, part of the halftime entertainment included included for the first time basically a live performance with 150 Intel drones. They flew inside the Mercedes-Benz Stadium for the first ever live Super Bowl halftime performance, and that was during Maroon 5 song. And, uh, it, and the song was called She Will Be Loved. It's a popular song by Maroon 5. Uh, do you ever listen to those guys at all?
0: Oh, uh, No no (laughs) i'm not cool enough
1: (laughs) didn't mean to put you on the spot but adam levine (laughs) is a a host of a a, of a pretty cool program on nbc and we uh, my wife and i like to to watch him a little bit on tv but so she will be loved is one of their key songs and so during that intel launched the what they're calling the shooting star drone formation it spelled out one and love so when i was editing Hmm. the pictures in from john Suhu, he was in the stands way above everybody he and, um, and my buddy uh, Rod Riley and Will Newton. But there were photos that the guys got of the L-O-V-E, you know, the formation that spelled that out. And I thought that was really neat. It just struck me as a cool photo. So I went ahead and edited that and moved that picture. And I thought it was neat. But I didn't know the backstory until Jim Moore wrote about it. And I just thought that the whole thing came together. Now, we heard about Intel doing these drone performances for previous Super Bowls. But they were not live; they were sort of taped and kind of mm. intertwined into into the halftime show. But it wasn't a live event. This one was. That was what was different about that.
0: Yeah, that is that is pretty interesting. Yeah, and then we know there's um, drones. Of, of course, were much larger part of the whole Super Bowl kind of apparatus and operation.
1: Yeah, the security system actually featured a tethered drone system, and my my buddy Matt Sloan of Skyfire, also in Atlanta. He uh, worked with military folks and other officials to have a tethered drone. Now, they had a 200-by-200-foot 200 200 exclusion zone, which was basically straight up and straight down. But they were sharing the airspace with um, potentially Black Hawk helicopters and also the, the U.S. Air Force Thunderbirds aerial demonstration team did an aerial flyover mm-hmm. before the game. But um, but Matt's folks were working with security people, and they were relaying real-time information down to other uh, stations and other officials just to keep an eye on security, to really, you know, take security to another level. It's a little bit more like kind of George Orwell, 1984-ish stuff. Hmm. But I kind of think, Ian, and I want to get your viewpoint on this, too, that this might be sort of the blueprint for some of these large events to come in the near future.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think no question. I mean, you know, when you think about all the various security protocols they use and the and the various ways that they provide security, both on the ground and in the air, I mean, it makes sense that drones would be part of that. But it, it, what strikes me, I think, about both of the, the elements of these stories is that the, and maybe it's because it's the first time, I don't know, we'll see, but gosh, the process by which both Intel and, and Matt's company had to go through to make these things happen. It was just astronomical. I mean, you're talking about, you know, Matt, it's, it, it took a year it did and a detailed security plan and everything else just to put a drone on a tether. And I think, man, if you would put a camera on a pole or <laughs> right. uh, put a helicopter out there, it's like, are you going to spend a year going through this, uh, you know, mitigation plan? I don't know. And, you know, Intel, put on their site or on Vimeo or something, a a really interesting kind of four minute B-roll of the whole, you know, the drone show. And that I just, I was left thinking, holy cow, the effort that goes into this to basically spell out a word with a drone light. I I don't know. I mean, it's like, is it, do people look at that kind of stuff and think, wow, that's so cool. And like, what are the amazing things we're going to see next from these things? Or I don't know, maybe it's I'm too much of a skeptic, but I look at it and I think, holy cow, that's a lot of work to spell a word in the air. You know, I don't know. Um,
1: well, I, I agree I agree with you on that. It is a lot of work uh, to spell a word in the air. Um, I think the technology that allows us to see that kind of thing is pretty cool. And I think that for the fans, it might have been more exciting than you or I. Yeah. We were kind of watching it, you know, through through another device. That's true. And, and in my case, I was watching it basically through still photos that were coming across my screen. But nonetheless, I think it does show that you could have these kind of entertainment options at other events. It won't be too long into the future, Ian. I don't think that we'll see this kind of, you know, kind of entertainment on a regular basis, even at local, you know, July 4th Independence Day celebrations. And things like that as the technology matures and as the software and as the process gets a little bit less expensive. But you're right. A year to get for Matt's group at Skyfire to get up with uh, all the officials and, and law enforcement and the FAA and everyone else. I mean, if you just can't do it overnight, if it was spot news and we're trying to cover something the next day, yeah. It's impossible to do. You just can't do that. But yeah. with a lot of planning and and like you said, with with uh, Intel, they scores of people looking after this. And you know, it's just one one thing after another. It's just a layers and layers of technology, and and lots could mess up. That is true.
0: Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, I, I guess as a photographer, you probably have a different perspective because I, you know, I'm not gonna get involved in this from a piloting standpoint. And so I look at it more from an entertainment standpoint and think, oh, okay, that's pretty cool. But, you know, is it worth the effort? I don't know. It, it feels a little kitschy at this point. And so, but I guess, uh, you know, as as somebody as a professional who might apply it in the future, you can look at that and say, whoa, the technology behind that, that could be really neat. I, that's something that I could see using someday, or I can at least see where the application might be in the future.
1: Yeah, it could be kind of cool. There's other, other things that we haven't even thought about that might be Worthwhile, and uh, you never know. Yeah, so yeah. it's interesting to see folks try to break out of the mold. But you're right; that's a lot of work <laughs> yeah. for a short return. Yeah.
0: Well, and hopefully it's just because they're trailblazers, right? In the future, I'm sure it'll be easier and right. faster and more efficient. So, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. So, hey, sticking with the future theme, two things going on with the uh, EVTOL or VTOL that I think are really this. This is very cool. This is exciting. The first is uh, you teased it: the Boeing flies through Aurora Flight Sciences, their, their, uh, their subsidiary, they flew a VTOL prototype. So beyond the napkin, beyond the animations and everything else, this thing took to the sky.
1: It did. It wasn't that far from where we are. It was out of Manassas, Virginia, and sort of the future of what flight could be. It was a vertical takeoff, hover, and landing demonstration that we saw uh, through Aurora Flight Sciences and, and CEO John Langford, was uh, Key Lee involved with that? And this has been a Boeing subsidiary since 2017, so they're they're not strangers. This is something they've worked together on for a while under the Boeing Next program. Yep. I think it's pretty interesting. And the fact that it's a real vehicle and and it did what it was supposed to do, I think, is a, a big hurdle.
0: Yeah, it really is. I mean, um, Aurora is a fascinating company. We could spend all day talking about them, but the fact that they've actually made this thing happen, um, it's such a big deal. And so it, it brings up all kinds of interesting questions about, you know, is this sort of a proof of concept or is this a design concept going forward or, you know, what's going to happen? It has, as you would expect, kind of the cockpit with kind of mini wings, a rear pusher engine, um, that it would use in cruise. And then these, these, uh, kind of drone motors, you know, for the, for the vertical takeoff and landing part. I look at that and I think, man, as a as a passenger vehicle, uh, that's got some dangers, you know, around it. I mean, it's like you think of a helicopter right. tail rotor and it's like immediately you start, you, you know, you look at these these rotors that are sitting there. Injury. correct. Yeah, but um, I have been a bit of a skeptic, I guess, with the whole urban air taxi thing. However, the stuff that I think Aurora has done to see their name in it and, and obviously Boeing's, like we already talked about, their manufacturing might and certification and everything else, it's like you can definitely see a finish line with these two companies together working on stuff like this.
1: Yeah. And the thing the the thing that we talked about, I think, on our last podcast you know, was that, you know, that Bell came out with uh, with a concept that they were marrying up with, I want to say with Airbus, unless I'm incorrect. And that was a like a piloted vehicle. Mm-hmm. And then the Boeings it, it aims for autonomy from the from the start. Yeah. So those are two different camps that we're looking at and yet we're seeing you know, developments in, in both of those different camps kind of at the same time. Yeah. And uh, very interesting, and, and I can't hardly wait to see what the next thing is, really. Yeah.
0: yeah, So something that's kind of related, and this is more in the concept phase, but, again, two companies that have that have done it, been there, done that, and so that that's saying something. Um, Pipistrel and Honeywell have announced they're coming together to work on a design. Now, Pipistrel w- was already tagged by Uber as, as a partner, and so to have Honeywell in there, again, with their flight control systems and, Automation systems and Pipistril's electric knowledge, potentially some interesting stuff going on there.
1: So, Honey, you know, when I think of Honeywell, uh, the first thing I think about are the Bendix King Avionics, and they're the parent company for that. Yeah. But nonetheless, they are, I mean, Honeywell is a giant in yes. the aerospace industry. Yeah. And uh, they really have some muscle behind behind everything. And so that gives Pipistrel, which I, I think of as sort of a new up-and-comer, mm-hmm. it gives them some, some skin in the game. And it really just, in my opinion, it helps move that forward dramatically. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's kind of an interesting marriage because you're exactly right. You've got the, the stability, the money, the expertise at Honeywell but then you've got Pipistrel, which kind of operates like a startup. They keep doing; they they constantly bring out new designs and kind of an engineering company that really pushes the envelope. So it should be some interesting stuff that happens there.
1: Yeah, and uh, one thing we ought to mention, unless we already did, but this is um, sort of being driven a little bit by the Uber ride-sharing concept for for aviation and ride-sharing. Yeah, and that's a key another key player. So you've got the Uber software, you know, folks, and and the you know the mapping folks. Putting all their expertise together with these these two aviation firms, and it's kind of like it looks like a pretty good triumvirate there.
0: Yeah, I agree. So hey, bringing it back to modern day, NTSB just this week released its most wanted list. It used to be called ten most wanted, but um, and there are still ten things on it, but now they're just calling it the most wanted list. So in the past, this has been a little controversial for for the GA world. And uh, some changes on this year that, uh, that are a little interesting.
1: Well, first thing that I was rejoicing about was uh, I was glad to see that controlled flight into terrain for GA pilots was not among the most wanted list safety items. How about you, Ian?
0: Yeah, loss of control. That's been on there the past couple of years. That's a big one. Um, it, was, it has been. Yep, was not on the list. Wasn't. Yep. But I was
1: surprised to see that Part One Thirty Five aircraft flight operations that did make the most wanted list. And you and I were chatting about this a little bit off podcast, but I was having a hard time trying to figure out what that was all about. But then I, I came to uh, to the NTSB site and, and poked around a little bit. So it looks like there are really three things that the NTSB would like to see major improvements in mm-hmm. for these Part 135 ops. Yeah. So the, the first was, so the, I'll go with the first one. You take the second one. It looks like the first one was that they, um, and I didn't realize that Part 135 operators were not required to have a safety management system. Mm-hmm. And I came to learn what that was because I, I know that our, our buddies at ASA actually have a book that describes safety management systems. And so that is a key piece of information that 135 operators should be using, according to the NTSB.
0: Yep. So mostly an ICAO thing, but yeah, SMS. The other thing that uh, NTSB wants 135 doing is flight data monitoring programs, which is some of them are doing.
1: Exactly. And then the other thing that we mentioned a minute ago, that plagued GA ops is controlled flight into terrain avoidance training programs. Now, the avoidance training program is something that the um, NTSB has advocated the Part 135 operators to do and to maintain, I guess, to to have sort of a robust training system for that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting because um, I was reading actually AvWeb's story about this and their comments, um, comments from readers, and uh, one guy in particular talks about flying 135 fixed wing and that um, they already had, you know, it's like he's used SMS programs in the past, didn't feel like they had a ton of benefit, felt like maybe it was a little bit uh, of a duplicate effort when you're talking about, you know, in terms of what the FAA already requires. He also said they already did CFIT avoidance training, so he doesn't know really know what the NTSB needs there. Um, but one thing he thinks that he was surprised that NTSB didn't include in the one thirty five piece was time and duty rules. So you know proper rest.
1: Oh right, yeah, yeah. Because you could be you could be fatigued, and that could that could really affect your decision making on multiple fronts.
0: Yeah. One thing though that's interesting about this year's uh, list, the most wanted areas. Is that um, a lot of them were very sort of broad across multiple categories, and they did have as as a most wanted item reduced fatigue related accidents. And so I think they're talking about obviously all modes of transportation there. And so I suppose you could lump that in.
1: Yeah, across the board, including trains and everything yeah. else.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Maybe
1: uh, long haul truckers, the whole the whole ball of wax, right?
0: So the rest of the list: eliminate distractions, like we said, reduce fatigue related. Uh, the 135 piece, fully implement positive train control. We heard about that in the news. And drug and other alcohol impairment. Increase implementation of collision avoidance system in all new highway vehicles. Implement a comprehensive strategy to reduce speeding-related crashes, car crashes. Strengthen occupant protection. Ensure the safe shipment of hazardous materials. That's an aviation one also. And then this last one, which um, I suppose we should talk about for a second, is require medical fitness. Screen for and treat obstructive sleep apnea.
1: Well, now that's something that pilots are should be aware of, Ian. If they're not, and that that's, I would say that that's kind of a more recent yes. phenomenon that people really thought about sleep apnea as an issue.
0: Yes, yeah. Now this one, <laughs> this one gets me a little bit because um, NTSB from the beginning was against basic med and had worked against it, and so we know that. And uh-huh. um, that I think is is what a lot of this talks about. They also or behind some of the sleep apnea requirements that FAA wanted to implement, that AOPA worked against. So it's uh, it, it, it's a little interesting to see that on there now. However, I say that, and it's like when when you go to that particular recommendation, they don't actually mention aviation. They talk about both highway and railroad. Right. I think it's 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 good to see aviation not as part of that as part of that piece of the list.
1: Yeah, yeah, but I, but I, I guess reading between the lines, are you? Th- are you thinking that this is on there, sort of, for the aviators to make sure that they are self-aware that this could be? That this is a larger issue in, in the transportation community.
0: Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, it's also, you know, there, there, there's always political stuff there with the NTSB list. So obviously, it's always good recommendations to follow, and, and and we should do everything we can to make flying as safe as we possibly can. I mean, I think that goes without saying but um it is interesting always to see kind of what's on the list and what's not
1: mhm i agree well it was, it was interesting to see the part 135 ops on there and there's there've been a couple of higher profile accidents that probably brought that to the top of the of the heap as far as improvements yep, yep
0: definitely needed definitely so hey, don't wanna wait any longer. Let's bring on our guest this week, uh, Clay Lacey, just a super interesting guy, um, background in all forms of aviation, from um, filming to FBOs to Reno to you name it, he's been there, done that. Uh, and Tom sat down with him and they had a, they had a great chat.
2: So tell me about your first flight. Uh, it was in a Staggerwing, I believe, right?
3: Well, Where's yes, you? it was. Back in Wichita when I was, I think, seven years old and uh, an earlier model, Staggerwing. Right. And there was a guy took rides uh, every Saturday and Sunday in about 50 minutes over town. And I was already in the model airplanes. and uh, it was into air, uh, flying, or, I mean, not into flying, into aviation in my mind, and... I remember every day Continental Airlines would come in from Denver and then come right over town and a Lockheed Lodestar really buzzing wow. along. i frequently watched that. And frequently we would go out to the airport to see TWA. And uh, once I flew, boy, I knew I really wanted to do that. I'd look down and see the world from uh, the sky was just great. So uh, every time I have a few dollars, uh, when I was say nine, ten years old, I'd get a eleven, go out and take a uh, buy a ride, a cub or something, you know. And uh, but when I was uh, about eleven years old, uh, a guy, the war was uh, about over. This guy started buying surplus uh, airplanes, Ronicas, and L four cubs and things, and uh, he was repainting him then and fixing him up at a golf. Course right across the street from my grandmother's farm, which I used to go out there on weekends and help my uncle. And I started going to the airport and helping this guy uh, uh, paint, put dope on him and sand and down. Right. The, and anyway, one day he said, uh, you know, the war is going to get over here pretty soon. They're going to have a GI flight training uh, for veterans. And he said, I want to put in an airport. And he said, we're really like this over there on your grandmother's farm. And, uh, I said, well, I'd be, I'd like to see it. I said, I'll arrange for him to and talk to her. So he talked to her and I came in, I was there. And, uh, three weeks later we had airplanes landing on the farm and just wow. took them. uh, they just got the wheat, They kind of level off, uh, uh-huh. the wheat stubble. And, uh, about a third of it was, uh, nice pasture grass. And so in three weeks I had an airport going there and, uh, <laughs> So, I never went farmed again in my life with right. the farming. I worked at the airport and uh, started flying quite a little bit When I, by the time I was 12 years old. This guy, his name is Orville Sanders, he uh, was real good about seeing opportunities I could get flying time in the ferrying airplanes or doing something. And uh, it was great. I, by the time I was 13 and about to become 14, I had about 40, 50 hours of flying duel. But w- one evening he uh, said, uh, I was taxiing airplanes around, and I knew, I knew the airplanes real well. Hmm. And he said, uh, if you want to go taxi around, he said, I'm going to go into town to get us some hamburgers late at night. was only one there. And he said, uh, you can go ahead and taxi around. He said, do, do what you want to do. I'll be gone in 20 minutes or something. So I knew that he was telling me I could just go flying if I wanted to, you know, <laughs> and uh, so I did. I took off, flew for about 10 minutes in a Aaronica. So he, I did that about five or six times. He'd bring it up again. I did get to go out and fly around a little bit. So the uh, chief pilot, chief flight instructor we had, uh, one day just he and I was in the office and he said, I, he said, hey, I know you've been flying a little bit out here by yourself. He said, uh, Orville uh, doesn't care, but he says, you're going to get in trouble or get us in trouble. He said, when's your birthday? And uh, I said, uh, two weeks. It was August 14th. He went over to his desk and opened the drawer and pulled out a form to get a medical and a student permit. He said, "Once you assume you're 16 and... Uh, you get a student permit and take any heat off of us. thought about a little while, and I thought, well, that's a pretty good idea, you know? <laughs> So, mm-hmm. two weeks later, I had, uh, my student permit, and started flying, and he uh, gave me the opportunity to do a lot of flying, ferrying airplanes, right. and different airplanes, and so I had my private, for 15, commercial instructor training, I was 16, so... By the time I was 19, I had about 800 hours, I think. Uh, a guy at the airport had his ad from United Airlines uh, on of a trade plane. They were hiring pilots. He said, boy, if I were you what should I do, you know? And finally, I decided to just mail it in. And uh, I did, right away, I got a telegram. And then a week or so later, another telegram, if I could report to Denver to, for an interview and things, which I did. And then a couple of weeks later, I was scheduled for to take a test. It just, it started called the Flanagan test. It was like a stay nine test at the university of Denver. And I went and did that. And the next thing I got a telegram, can you report to training in January? So anyway, that was uh, great. And uh, had a great career at Unida. United, they were a wonderful company. Like I said, I was on a senior list for forty-one years, but through military leaves and various things, it really uh, only was probably probably four years at least in the forty-one years I was off on some kind of leave, military mm-hmm. or something. So I started flying DC threes at United, nineteen fifty-two and my draft board was still after after me in wichita the Korean war was on and i uh i was living in california uh when i went with the united my first choice of uh, assignment assignments was los angeles which is lucky you know but uh, be able to go to california right right off the start anyway uh i was real lucky and uh, being young and a lot of new things and Uh, when I came back from pilot training, came back to the guard flying F-86s, but one of the fellows in the guard was Jack Conroy, who Mm -hmm. built the Pregnant Guppies, and, and, uh, I, about two weeks, I met him, and he knew everybody in town, Tony Levere and Fish Salmon, and all, you know, kind of pilots pilots around here, and then... uh, through him, I got to know all these people in a month or so, and, and uh, so I was dealing with high-level, experienced people, which was really nice. I just was lucky, lucky, you know? and so then uh, I had met Bill Lair. In fact, his son was in the guard with me, and I'd met Bill Lair and flown his airplane with a new autopilot. And, Evaluating it for a guy I knew. And anyway, Bill, uh, when, before he started the, the Lear, and he went to Switzerland, uh, he, I came over and met with him and talked about the Lear Chat. Mm-hmm. Right? And he went to Switzerland to build it. They did. They uh, had a pretty far along, I'd say probably 60% in Switzerland. And, uh, Bill liked to go out and talk to people, you know, and say, what are you doing? And the guy would tell him, he'd say, well, you know, that's great. He said, but, you know, if you'd make this change or this, I think it'd be better. You know, he'd love to go out and be hands-on on everything. Right. And he couldn't do it. although They had four different languages, uh, German, uh, Italian, French, and, and, uh, anyway, he, uh, Decided he should come back to the United States, so he went to Wichita to talk to the people in the city about building or him buying some land at the municipal airport, building a factory, and about uh, getting a bond issue that would uh, and he would buy most of the bonds, but to build the factory, and uh, he did. So he was in Switzerland about maybe a year. Year and a half, possibly. He invited me back there to see what they were doing, and we get. And the first plane was flying at that time. We made about sixty flights, I think, and I got to fly it. It was a great air airplane. Anyway, make long story short. I talked to Al Paulson about it, who I was involved with in mm-hmm. California, about we should try and get a distributorship. You know. So I flew Al back to Wichita and my P 50, the P 51 I had. <laughs> he got in the back seat and he flew back to Wichita. And he got a flight in the letter. And he was real charged up. So, when, because I knew Bill was going to go uh, into this d- distribution program, he was kind of run out of money and he needed money. And uh, he didn't want to, he wanted to do a factory direct deal. But thank goodness Al got into it and um, we became a distributor on the west 11 western states i think and uh our first demonstrator i brought the van nuys airport in november of uh, 1964 and uh i was still working for with united all this time too you know but anyway i was busy busy and uh it was great great opportunity the people i met were just fabulous you know i mean customers we were starting to sell airplanes too so that really uh, changed my life. Well, it didn't change it. it. gave me a, a great opportunity. Then, uh, in 1968, I think it was, uh, Bill sold the factory to Charlie Gates, Gates Rubber Company, and Gates wanted uh, to control all sales. Now, our deal what we had with Bill there, we could kept the distributorship for five years, more. But Al Paulson was kind of uh, we had taken in Danny Cade, who was a the partner then, and he and Danny didn't get along real great. And Al was ready to get out of it, too, so he did, and so I uh, started my own charter company and took a layer, you know, uh, got it later, it been one of the demonstrators. And I started my company in 1968. So anyway, uh, aviation's been a great life, uh, it's been great. just great yeah. for me, I love it.
2: Yeah. So tell me about Play Lacy Aviation today. So you've grown it from 1968 with one Learjet, it sounds like. Yes. You know, the company that is today, which even though you don't control all of it anymore, you've sold some of it off, but it still a, a carries your name. It's a significant, yeah. significant company. How many airplanes?
3: Well, I think we uh, manage over 100 airplanes. Wow. And uh, big in charter, right. you know, and a lot of the managed airplanes, people want to charter them good low income, and uh, we're big into maintenance, mm-hmm. and uh, it's turned into a pretty big organization. Yeah. And uh, I sold my major uh, frequent pastors.
2: And some of those, then, connections led to your work in the movie business. Talk about Astro Vision and how yeah. that came
3: about. Uh, because the Lear was the first air- airplane available out there to, they could film another jet, Douglas. Was trying to use a B twenty five still, uh, mm-hmm. Tallman's. and I offered him a give him free flight and a Lear to see what they thought. And uh, of course, immediately they saw how much quicker it could do one scene and rejoin up for another one. And things, boy, they were sold. So they even uh, built a couple of kind of rudimentary camera mounts that would pivot the camera at the window instead of swiping the window. And I started working with them and then got into uh, Hollywood movies, I stationed Zebra, the first one I recall. But working on a lot of movies. Then uh, Astrovision with the periscope. Mm-hmm. That, it just changed uh, aerial photography. A couple of fellows uh, were living here and they were Englishmen, but they were living in California and, uh, and then helicopter mounts, building helicopter mounts. I met, and they knew about a system There were periscopes that were built in England to mm-hmm. be used on a VC 11, I think, aircraft. To be able to, they had a requirement that if you had, to, you had to be able to look the engines and fly. It's mechanical. The engines were about on the tail like a 727. You can see them. So they had a periscope built that they could stick out through the fuselage, Mm. unplug it and stick it out and look at the engine. It was very good optics, well-built. And Bob Netman and John Carroll uh, got a couple of these periscopes and worked on them, modified them in early 1975, Uh, had them, we could put them in at Lear and test, made the first flight with Astrovision, which just, you can see, just revolutionized photography. And in fact, I've got a, a, a videotape that has some of the footage from the very first shoot and it was real good even today it looks good so uh, I was doing every airline commercial in Mm -hmm. the United States for sure and a lot around the world go to Europe several times probably gone there more than 12 times to Mm -hmm. shoot for uh, European airlines, um, British Airways and when uh, Airbus first got started I was going over there and doing the. Some work for them that they were able to get a camera system built similar to it that uh, they've used very successfully. And uh, but I've been we've been to Japan, Australia several times, all over uh, with Astrovision, and uh, did a lot of movie movie work for Hollywood. I shot Top Gun, Flight of the Intruder, The Great Santini, and several good pretty big films that had a lot of aviation right. in them. But our biggest deal was airline commercials mm. and then uh probably second was probably the military and mm. manufacturers we got into quite a bit with manufacturers and, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, i personally flown that oh and on over 2,000 flights mm. and um uh we had had other people my number two guy at the time Scott Patterson was flying it but it revolutionized aer- aerial photography yeah
2: you mentioned uh, at one point the the super guppy or the pre- pregnant guppy. Yes, it was I think we called it in the beginning? But you you did the first flight in that. Yes. So tell me, what was that like? That well, was uh, Jack Conroy,
3: Conroy who's the guy I met when I came back to the guard, yeah. and he built the guppies. Uh, it was it actually wasn't his original idea. That someone else, Jack was thinking about starting an airline to Y, and then there was some Stratocruisers, X-panamers. Were for sale but the, this guy had a picture of a drawing that somebody made and uh, it was it printed in mechanics illustrated and showed a modified airplane that would carry the saturn missile and that really uh got jack's attention and he forgot about the airline at that time and started working on uh, putting together a program to build the guppy and uh raising financing and he uh showed the idea to Werner von Braun, who's head of NASA, and he thought it was great because it was, their plan was to take boosters of Saturns and uh, the Apollo was built here in L.A., and Lunar Lander and all, and uh, through the Panama Canal and uh, up to Cape Kennedy. It was, was going to take 31 days. Hmm. And the first one they'd sent they did send one but the guppy was already built we'd flown it and why it got damaged some guys shot at it in the panama canal hmm. damaged the electrical system but the guppy was flying in and uh didn't have the loading equipment and things but we were able to take the guppy down to cape uh canaveral i guess it was then and uh bring it back here and leave it in the airplane at los angeles airport they repaired it and had it back in seven days to taken and uh wonder von bryan gave jack conroy a letter saying it was the most important thing Mm -hmm. a single thing in putting a man on the moon in that decade in the 60s because it just really cut down the travel time and it it turns out the uh, in the original pregnant guppy which was 21 feet in diameter inside um it could carry 12 of the 13 major components for the apollo program for the moon and uh then he built the super guppy, uh, which is 26 feet in diameter. Mm-hmm. he carry everything in it. And he built, let's uh, see, he built the pregnant guppy, and I think he he built two super guppies for NASA. Then Airbus uh, wanted them you know, to carry, they are building the Airbuses in England, mm-hmm. wings, I think, in England, fuselages in Germany, and assembling them in France and Toulouse. And so they started using the Guppies. They had th- they built with parts the Jack and D- uh, Bill here in, uh Santa Barbara that shipped to e- Europe. They built two more Guppies, mm. and uh, then since then they, they built Airbus three hundred in the Guppies, and it was it was the heart of their whole program. Airbus couldn't gotten going the way they did. Build them in France, right. and but uh, most of the airplane was built in Germany and. And England. So it was an interesting program and uh, very important.
2: How did how did the airplane handle? Did it was it noticeable well, that it was such an unusual shape?
3: No, it handled okay, but it slowed down. and uh, And uh, Boeing was real interested in it. They were following the program really good because they they had the seven forty seven on the drawing board.
2: Oh, okay.
3: And uh, everybody was wondering what the, s- the speed would be, or they were. I don't say they had a drawing board; they were planning it and. Uh, Using the five most popular drag theories at the time, the pregnant guppy, if you use all five of them, the worst one was, was going to slow down 50, over 50 miles an hour. The best one was around uh, 22 miles an hour and averages of over 30. And when we flew it, it was only about 18 miles an hour uh, drag, slowing it down. You couldn't fly as high, but did a good job and uh, the uh, first it was built from a piston powered strata mm-hmm. and then uh, the supercuppy was built from a c97 with turboprops uh, LeMay had had three of them built and uh, got one of the, those surplus and modified it and okay. it was uh, turbo props really helped yeah. you know carry more weight but it was an important airplane and did its Job for a long time. NASA still flies them. Yeah. I filmed it a couple of years ago, going into taking some stuff up to Seattle, and uh, I believe the one they have that the one they're primarily using now, though I believe was built in France. I think it, mm-hmm. it came from Airbus when right. they surplus. But anyway, it was an important airplane at the time. Yeah. Still flying.
2: So, any any scary moments in airplanes? What's what's the most well, scary one not,
3: not many. I've. Uh, I, you know, have over fifty-five thousand hours, and I haven't had many scary things happen. Uh, Airline flying, I can't remember anything really. And flew in the air races, won the national races, pilot race, Reno in nineteen seventy, and I had a couple engine failures, uh, but no problem made forced landings and back on the airport i guess probably one of the hairiest things that uh, i've had to happen was um i ha- have a, a Pilatus porter i still have it and uh, i uh, decided to put more fuel in it we uh, added 100 gallons of wings and the uh, fa went into a flutter test which really it turned out didn't really the, the way the tanks were located we shouldn't have had to done it, but anyway we did it. I, I had no qualms about it because I loved the airplane, and flown it quite a bit. But on the last point of uh, the dive test, uh, pulse the stick for to induce flutter. It fluttered, Ooh. and uh, ailerons came off. Oh my! And uh, one completely, and the other one was worse than coming off. It was uh, half of it was hanging down and oh, no. making the airplane roll. So uh, roll over is about 110 degrees and a little past 90. I was trying to get it back over, and of course there's no ailerons. The stick was frozen on the side, and it was using rudder and things, and you uh, couldn't get the roll over. Finally, it was... Getting a little bit low out here over the Simi Valley, I finally decided to put it in reverse and uh, get the nose down and put it in reverse, and it went almost straight down. But um, that way, it could pull up. Uh-huh. Uh, it was uh, flying sideways, but I could pull up, get back to level flight, and ended up landing it in the, the field. And, uh, the airplane was flying sideways, and I had to. And no roll control, so I had to slip it. Yeah, you could roll it some with the rudder, of course. Right. But I put in a real slip, like the wing was yeah. going to hit the ground, and then pull off the power, and use the rudder, and it came in and just land made made a perfect three point <laughs> landing by luck, <laughs> and uh, that was maybe one of the hairiest ones so I've.
2: Yeah, I would say that's pretty hard.
3: Uh, had myself. Uh, uh Bob hoover had all kind of her yeah, experiences and he yeah. jets and he had a, a lot of- wilder rides and right. jet fighters
2: so speaking of supersonic the valkyrie you you had a, an experience uh, with with the valkyrie and the
3: right flight. i was filming the valkyrie uh, let's see about nineteen sixty six or i believe it was sixty six um and uh, I was also trying to uh, interest airlines and be using the airplane like a Learjet to, uh, for training. And uh, to get the ATPs and things, mm-hmm. it was a lot less expensive. So I, I, one of the companies I working on, it was a company I worked for, United. So I wanted to take them and they wanted to go back to the factory to see the Lear. And I went to San Francisco and picked up the head of engineering and some of the key people there. Taken back to Wichita to uh, meet Bill Learn to see what how they built the Lairn, and what it was all about. So we were there, for while, uh, in Bill Laird's office, and a couple of hours or so, and I went out and looked in the hangar, and the airplane I'd flown back there. They had the cowlings off, or had a, a had a really apart. I went in the hangar. Said, what are you doing? They said I built all this. do a mod. I forget exactly what it was on that but but what he would do in those days. Uh, we, if they found out the airplane needed something done to it, he frequently had them all fixed before the F-A could ever ask you an A-D. <laughs> they were all done. And he would start calling people, come by Wichita and you want to do some things to your airplane. Wow! And uh, amazing mm-hmm. the things he did. Anyway, I said, well, when can you get it ready? And I had the job to uh, film the B-70 the next day. This was like Mm -hmm. four o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, they said, Val, midday tomorrow or something. Oh, Jesus. So I caught an airliner to LA and uh, called Sinatra's uh, pilot to make arrangements to use his airplane. We had to deal with him. We'd sold him at Lear's uh, number 31 serial number. Mm. And we'd use it frequently. And then trade him time, give him a airplane to use. Got back here, and by the time I got home, it was midnight. So I had my alarm set for five o'clock to get up. I need to be at Edwards at seven. Supposed to be at seven. And about five minutes to five, uh, Don Lieto, who was uh, Frank's head of flight operations, and main pilot called me and he says hey before you take the plane to Edwards you you gotta go pick up Frank and uh, Dean uh, Dean Martin uh, Burbank and take them to uh, Palm Springs what time are you gonna be there I said you know I'm supposed to be at Edwards 7 he said they'll be there at 630 I said well ask them if they could get there a little earlier and I'll be there well they did they got there by 615 and uh, they'd been in a fight that night uh, uh, Frank and Dean had gotten in a uh fight in the Hollywood uh, Hills Hotel and uh, wanted to get out of town. So they showed up at the airport, I picked up the airline terminal gate two at Burbank. And um, Frank had blood all over his shirt. He had a uh, homemade uh, sling his arm was in, it was made out of a pillowcase. Yeah. And Dean had two black eyes and blood on his shirt. And, and uh, so, uh, the, the guy that was fighting he promoted the guy that won the fight kept coming in the polo lounge and uh, saying, uh, asking them to come out in the lobby and he he said if you guys are as tough as you uh, I hear I come out here I want, want to have a little fight with you or something well, he kept blowing them off but he kept bugging them and finally uh, they went out there and uh, got in a fight and I don't know who uh, hit him last, but then we hit the guy and he fell down and hit his head on the marble table, knocked him out. He was out for like a month. And uh, anyway, uh, they knew they needed disappear. You know? get, get out of town. <laughs> so uh, they were going to go to Palm Springs. Yeah. So we're flying over there, and I could hear him in a little ear. Frank was sitting right behind the copilot. Dean said, uh, "We better go out and get out of town." He said, "Out of the country." He said, "Let's let's go to England." Mm. I thought, "Jeez, I'm I be I can't go. To England. I need to be at Edwards." <laughs> and uh, I thought he didn't didn't mean in this airplane. Keep right. going. Anyway, Frank said, "No, no," and he said, "We'll be okay, at Palm Springs. He said, we'll stay at Jimmy Van Heusen's house." <clears throat> he said, "It's it was a Yucca, North Palm Springs, and." Jimmy used to fly a helicopter in his house and things. And anyway, uh, so I landed, they got off and I, uh, quickly. And Frank knew I needed to take the plane.
0: All right, David, so um, really, uh, really liked hearing from Clay. Just a really, really interesting guy.
1: Yeah, and you know, that foundation has several scholarships. So uh, if you're looking to be an aviation maintenance technician or pilot, make sure to visit Clay Lacy and find out about the scholarships.
0: Yeah, yep, yeah, great point. Uh, all right, I think that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen.
1: And I'm David Tulis. Uh, don't forget, you could find us at aopaorg slash And we're on Apple's iTunes and at the Sporty's Takeoff app. All right. We'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Thanks. Hangar Talk from AOPA, your freedom to fly.